Welcome to the Baseline Community Church Podcast. Nancy and I were gone last Sunday, and this week we were on vacation up in Ventura with our kids. It was fabulous. It was really great to get away um, on the beach up there. Uh, uh, Karina Menjavar preached last week, and I thought did just a, a great job of continuing in our series through 2 Corinthians, just talking about this fact that Paul says that he believed and then he spoke. And that you can speak in words, but we also speak in our actions in other ways too. But that it's important that part of who we are as followers of Jesus is that we, um, that we speak the truth of, of who Jesus is. So we're going to continue on that, and we're going to be looking at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, the scriptures will be up behind me also. So there's a way to get into that. Um, on, on January 2nd, 1956, Jim Elliott woke up. It was an exciting day for him. He probably bounded out of bed, got dressed very quickly, because this was the day that he and four of his missionary friends were going to set up a camp near the uh, Alcas uh, Inc. The, in, these people that were in, I'm sorry, the um, Alcas people in Ecuador. And so he got on a plane, and um, Nate Saint drove, flew him and four others, and they set up camp. And they had been praying for this day for many, many months. In fact, Nate Saint had been figured out how to fly his plane over their village, and they could drop gifts down to the people in the village. And they actually figured out how to set up a loudspeaker to where they could project um, Alka's sayings of friendship to them. And so this was the day, January 2nd. And so the five of them set up camp on the river across from this village. And two days later, a man and two women from the village came to, their, to these five men. And they ate a meal together. And in fact, Nate Saint took up the man in his plane and showed him through around the jungle and brought him back down. And then those three left. Four days later, the five of them are still at their camp across from the river, and two women from the village come walking out, and Jim Elliott and one of the others start wading into the river to go meet with them. As they are about halfway across the river, all of a sudden, uh, warriors from that tribe come out of the jungle with their spears. And Jim Elliott has a split-second moment to where he could reach for the gun that the pistol he has to defend himself, but he decides not to. And in that moment, all five of those missionaries are killed by the villagers right there on the riverside. Their names were, uh, and here we have pictures of them, Ed Malkany, Roger Yonderin, Nate Saint, Peter Fleming, and Jim Elliott. All five killed there on the river by the village. And these men and their families all knew the possible cost of doing this because these villagers had killed basically anybody they had tried to come into their area. But, but Jim Elliott felt that the only way for these people to change was that they came to know Jesus. And so for him, it was worth the risk. And you have to ask yourself, what gets a person to a place where they would do that? What, what gets a person to the place where they would have the courage to do this? And I believe that the courage comes from the passage that we're going to look at today in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 
where, where Paul will talk about what this life is like and what the life to come is like. So um, here's what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because we are clothed and will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And so the first question for us to think about today is this, and and what Paul says is, what do you know? What do you know? Paul starts out this section saying, for we know. And then in the sections that follow, verses 10 to 6, or 6 to 10, another time he'll say, this is what we know. And he also will say, this is our confidence. He is fully confident of what he has learned from God. And what he knows is this, is that this life with this flesh and blood body is not all there is, that there is something greater beyond this. In fact, in the, in the scripture, he says that our body is like, a, he describes it as a tent. And the word there is that it's a tent that can be folded up and moved someplace else. But he says that God is creating a building for us, something that's permanent. And I often thought, what gives Paul this incredible confidence? That he can say, I know this. That this body that I have will one day be gone, but there is something greater for me in the future. And I believe he knew this and had this confidence because of a few things. The first is this, that he had an encounter with the living Jesus Christ. You might remember that, that Paul, he was known as Saul then, is on the road to Damascus and he's actually going to Damascus so that he can arrest anybody that is a Christian. And on that road, Jesus Natan actually just knocks him off onto the ground, says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, Lord? He says, I am Jesus. And from that moment on, his life is different. But he had an actual encounter with the living Jesus. Now, for most of us, it's usually not that dramatic. For some of us, it's the fact that we were grown, we grew up in a family that followed Jesus, and we knew about Jesus from an early age. For, for others of us, we, we had that encounter at a camp, maybe when we were in junior high or high school, like our kids are having this weekend. For others, maybe you got to a point where life was just really difficult, and something's going on in your life, it's hard, and, and you turn to Jesus, and you have this encounter with the living God. But, but that's what had happened to, to Paul, is that he had had an encounter with the living Jesus. And that's how he had this confidence. Another thing about Paul is that he um, had studied the scriptures of his day. He had studied the Old Testament. He was getting ready to become a rabbi. He was one of the best known of his day. And so he knew the Old Testament scriptures really, really well. 
And after his encounter with Jesus, the Holy Spirit gives him a whole different lens on how to understand the scriptures and how to understand what eternal life is like. So if you read Paul's writings, he oftentimes will refer back to the Old Testament and explain how what he learned in the Old Testament is now making sense in terms of who Jesus is and will make sense making sense in terms of what the future is going to be and what eternal life is going to be and what this kingdom of God is going to be. So he, he had this confidence because he knew the scriptures really, really well. And then finally, I think the third reason he had um, this great confidence was that he continued to have encounters with Jesus throughout his life. That that road to Damascus experience was not the only time he ever encountered Jesus. It was not like, well, good, that happened to me back then. Or, you know what, I met Jesus back when I was in high school. Or, men in college it became. But it was something that was continual in his life. And it was in times of prayer. There's a time where we go, he's like, Lord, I don't know where to go. Where should I take this group of people we're trying to plant churches and the Lord says, come over to Macedonia. There's another time he writes about how he was in prayer and he had gone up to the third level of heaven. He had these encounters with the living God that, that made a difference. I mean, I, I, I had one of those moments this last week on vacation. It doesn't have to happen in prayer. It doesn't have to be a religious moment oftentimes where we encounter Jesus, right? It was... Um, we're on the beach in, in Ventura. It's sunset. We're walking. I'm walking with my family, and I turn back, and I see a sunset that is the most beautiful thing I've seen. And I look at the ocean. I look at my family. I look at the sunset, and I'm like, Lord, you are so real, and you are so good to me. And those are moments that give us confidence in terms of who Jesus is who we are in him, and what the future holds for us. So that's how he can say. He says that he goes that this body, this earthly tent, is destroyed, and there is a permanent building waiting, and he says that we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. Now, you could easily skip that over and just continue to read, but what an interesting statement that the building that God is creating for us in future is not a building that we are going there to live, but we are going there to put it on. Isn't that weird? That we are putting our heavenly dwelling on. We're not escaping this world to get to something better. We are putting the heavenly dwelling on so that we can be created and prepared and ready for the age that is to come. That is not about escaping to something better, but we're putting this heavenly dwelling on. It says, if you are living or you are wearing the building that God has created for you so that you can then do what he's called you to do in the age to come. It's such an interesting statement. But Paul says, and the second thing is this, that he groans for this. And so the question for us to ask is this, what do you groan for? I mean, I find myself groaning a lot these days. 
Usually it's kind of when I get up and out of a chair, you know, the groaning about my body falling apart. I'm, you can groan about politics. We can groan about um, inflation. We can groan about the future. I'm, these days I'm groaning about the fact that UCLA is moving into the, into the Big Ten and they're going to get killed in their football season in the future. I mean, you can groan about these things. You can groan about the heat. You can groan about traffic. There's lots and lots of things we actually groan about. But Paul is groaning because he wants to be clothed with his eternal dwelling. He groans because it is not yet his time to leave this life physically and join the life to come. I wonder, do you groan about that? Do you look forward to that? Do you think about how incredible that is going to be that you would actually groan for that? Now, there are definitely some things that we should groan about in our day. Things like injustice, poverty, the worldwide malnutrition, religious hypocrisy. There's lots of things that we should be groaning about these days. In fact, the founder of World Vision, Bob Pierce, has a really famous saying that I love. He says this, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. Those are things that we should be groaning about. You know, but when I think about my own life, I have to ask, what, what do I groan about? Is it really all that important oftentimes? Does it really make a matter and make any sort of difference in terms of eternity or anything like that? What, do you, what are you groaning about these days? And then just to remind us, verse 5 here says this. Now the one who fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And Paul says, this is your purpose. Your purpose is that one day you will have a heavenly dwelling that you will be wearing and you will be a part of God's new creation in the life to come. This is your actual purpose. To, and that we are now participating in God's kingdom and we are preparing to live for eternity that that is ultimately what our purpose is. Dallas Willard has a, a great quote about this. He says, you are a never-ceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. That that's who you are. That this is your purpose that you are a never-ceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's great universe. That's what we are looking forward to. This is your purpose. Sorry, this thing keeps messing up on me. This is your spouse's purpose. This is your co-worker's purpose. This is your kid's purpose. Now, it's great to... Um, to be a coworker and to do well in your business. And, and I think God blesses that, and that's a part of what God wants is us to do our work well. But ultimately, your coworker's purpose is that one day he or she will put on God's eternal building that he's created for them. It's great to have a family. It's great to have kids. 
it's great to have kids that can do yard work around your house and can clean up and do all that stuff, right? And take care of you when you're old and all that. But ultimately, your kid's purpose is that one day they will be clothed with that eternal building that God has created for them. So Paul knows what awaits for him. He groans for what is to come. And he knows that this is his ultimate purpose. So then the question is, how then should we live? How should we live? That's what he continues on in verse 6. He says, therefore, because of all this that we've already just talked about, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. That's such a great encouragement. And for whenever I do um, memorial services or talk to people that are grieving, that is such a great line. That as long as we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord physically. But when we are away from the body, we are with the Lord physically. That's a great encouragement. For we live by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. For we make it our goal to please him. Whether we are at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So Paul uses that word therefore, right? Therefore, because of all this that I've written, here's how you should live. And the first thing is this. We live by faith and not by sight. It's a big part of this whole section in 2 Corinthians, that we live by faith and not by sight. You see, much of what Paul did doesn't make sense. If you were to watch what he did and how he, he lived his life, I'm giving up this possible high standing as a religious leader, um, traveling from town to town, preaching the good news of Jesus and his resurrection, being run out of town, being arrested time and time again, being stoned and left for dead. You would say, Paul, it makes no sense how you're living your life. But he says, no, we live by faith and not by sight. Jim Elliott has a great quote that many probably have heard before. He says this. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. For him, it made, didn't matter what he had to give up because he could not hold on to his own life forever. And he gained so much that he will never lose. So Paul says, live by faith, not by sight. Then he also says this. He says, live in such a way that this life on earth could be taken at any point. That's how Paul lived. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 says something similar. He says, For me, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he continues in that Philippians passage and says, you know what, I really want to go and be with the Lord in eternity, but I know I need to stay here for your good, that there still is work to be done. So Paul in no way is saying be reckless with the life that God has given you, but live it in such a way that where God is leading, you will go no matter what the consequences or how dangerous it might be. 
But if you sense God's calling you to go in a certain way, he says, go that way. Live this life in such a way that it could be taken at any moment. And then finally, he says this. He says, make it your goal to please the Lord in this age and in the age to come. Isn't that a great, that'd be a great way to start your day in prayer. Lord, may all I do today please you this day and in the age to come. I just want to please you, Lord, whatever it might be. I want to do that. And then he ends with this pretty eye-opening statement that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done in the body, whether good or bad, that we will all be judged. Now, the interesting thing is that this is not a uh, judgment regarding salvation. Paul is writing to people who know Jesus. He's writing to people that are a part of a church. He's writing to people that are trying to follow him well. So this is not a judgment whether you are belong to Jesus or not. This is for those of us that belong to Jesus and that we will be judged for what we do. That we will be judged whether we continue to follow him well or not. And so, so the, the prayer really is, Lord, Help me to do everything today that will please you. So here's how we wrap this up. So here's the question. So are you convinced that God has amazing things for you in the life to come? Do you groan for this life that is to come? Do you see this as your ultimate purpose throughout all eternity? And when you do believe those things, then you really can live a life today that makes a difference. When you settle those things in your heart, I believe, Lord, that you've got great things planned for me in eternity. I want to be there one day with you. And I'll do whatever it takes for me to, un- to experience that purpose in my life. Then you can live and do unbelievable things in this world today. I mean, most of you may know this already, but the story of Jim Elliott didn't end on that January day in 1956. That, that, that less than three years after Jim Elliot was killed, that his widow, Elizabeth Elliot, and their daughter, Valerie, and Rachel Saint, who was Nate Saint's sister, the three of them, went back and lived in that village with the same people that had killed those five missionaries. That they had met a couple women from that tribe and got to know them, and those helped them to come back, and, and they lived in there. And... Um, Elizabeth Elliot ministered to those people for the next five years. Um, Rachel Saint stayed for almost 25 or 30 years. And they had this incredible ministry with those people. That the very men who had killed Jim Elliot came to faith. And one final quote from Jim Elliot that's a little less well-known, but I think so powerful. 
Here's what he said. Lord, make my way prosperous. Not that I achieve high station, but that my life may be an exhibit to the value of knowing God. Help me to be prosperous. Not so much in getting a bunch of money, not so much in in walking up that social ladder or that corporate ladder, not in having the bigger house or the better car, not prosperous in that way, Lord. But may I live a life that is an exhibit to the value of actually knowing God. So obviously, most of us are never going to be called into the foreign mission field, though some of you might. Most of us are not going to have to give our life, our physical life, because of our faith, like Jim Elliott and others did. So the question is this. What does it mean for you to live your life in such a way that you are an exhibit to the value of knowing God? How are you willing to put your life on the line? And again, it's probably not physically. But what does it mean for us as Christians to put our life on the line relationally with people or emotionally with people? Or what does it mean that um, I'm willing to sacrifice financially for the good of the kingdom? That's the question for us today. What does it mean for you to put your life on the line? And we can do this because Jesus put his life on the line. Because Jesus actually died for you and I. That's how we can live differently. That's how our life can be turned around. That's how everything and what we value can be changed. Because Jesus actually put his life on the line for you and I. And we're going to be reminded of that when we take communion here in a moment. That Jesus Christ died for you and I. That we might live lives that are different. That we might go through life with a different perspective on what really is important and what's valuable. And what it really means to live a prosperous life. Thank you for joining us. For more information about Baseline Community Church, please go to BaselineCC.com.